Hello and welcome to the Oasis Church podcast. Thanks for joining us. If you've been around Oasis uh, for a, a few years, you'll know that in 2019 through to 2020, we started a series in the book of John. Now at this point, we're not now pressing play uh, to continue where we kind of stopped in March 2020, but rather we're gonna look at it through a lens of Jesus's invitation in John 10:10, where he says that he's come to bring life to you and to me, uh, whether we're in the room, whether we're online, whether we're watching at a different point, whether we know something of Jesus, when we think we know nothing of Jesus, that he's come in order that we could know life and life in full. And it's that that we want to look at because as we continue in the book of John, what we're going to discover is John begins to paint a picture of what that life in full looks like. John 16, 5-16 But now I'm going to him who sent me None of you asks me, where are you going? Rather, you are filled with grief because I have said these things. But very truly, I tell you, it is for your good that I am going away. Unless I go away, the advocate will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. But when he comes, he will prove the world to be in the wrong about sin and righteousness and judgment about sin because people do not believe in me, about righteousness because I am going to the Father, where you can see me no longer, and about judgment because the prince of this world now stands condemned. I have much more to say to you, more than you can now bear, but when he, the spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all the truth. He will not speak on his own. He will speak only what he hears and he will tell you what is yet to come. He will glorify me because it is from me that he will receive what he will make known to you. All that belongs to the Father is mine. That is why I said the Spirit will receive from me what he will make known to you. Jesus went on to say, In a little while, you will see me no more. And then, after a little while, you will see me. My daughter Chloe and I like to play chess together. And um, just the other day, I heard a helpful illustration about chess and the Christian life from Andrew Wilson, who's a really gifted preacher, part of the New Frontiers family. Now, when Chloe and I play chess, she loves to capture my pieces, yeah? If she gets a bishop or a knight or even a pawn, she'll, you know, rub it in my face and show me the growing collection of my pieces on her side of the table. Uh, But the thing about chess is, in the end, it's all about the king. Chloe can take my pieces, but the game is all about getting the king. If I get her in checkmate, even with the few pieces that I have, she loses. And then dad has the last laugh. And he who laughs laughs, Chloe Grace, laughs loudest. It's all about the king. 
Andrew Wilson explains that in life, there are times when you feel like you are winning. Everything's going well and you're gaining all this stuff, finance, health, reputation, influence, breakthrough in circumstances. And that's all fine. But in the end, if you've not got hold of the king, it counts for nothing. All that stuff can go in the flesh. What good is it for a man to gain the whole world and yet forfeit his soul? Equally, you may feel like you're losing everything. Sickness, inflation, job insecurity, wars and rumors of wars. And yet if you have the king, you have everything. It's all about the king. In the passage just read out from John's Gospel, and thank you, Anne, so much for reading, Jesus is speaking to his disciples on the night that he is betrayed into the hands of his executioners. And he's warning the disciples, don't expect life to be easy. In this world, you will have trouble. Suffering, persecution, uncertainty, that's going to be standard Christianity. You know, it's estimated that in the 20th century alone, something like 26 million people lost their lives for serving Christ. 26 million. And even this week, I was hearing a report of pastors in the Ukraine who have decided not to leave their besieged cities despite increasing shelling and danger. Instead, they've chosen to stay so they can serve and comfort and bring hope to those who are hiding underground and unable to leave themselves. I also heard of Russian pastors writing a petition to the Kremlin against the invasion of the Ukraine. In doing so, they risk everything. These brothers and sisters are convinced having Jesus is having everything. And in the UK, following Jesus does not mean risking our lives, not at the moment, but it it, it may involve letting go of much that the world holds dear, and it will not be easy. And here, Jesus tells his disciples to expect things to get hard, and what's more, he says, I'm going away. But So they won't see him anymore. And the disciples might well be asking, well, where's God going to be when things get hard then? But Jesus assures them that it is for their good that he goes to the Father. Because his going means he'll send the Spirit to come. The advocate, the helper, the counselor. Different translations of the same name given to the Holy Spirit. As advocate, the Spirit will come to help And he will work on our behalf. But but how? How would it be to our good that Jesus goes and the Spirit comes? What will be the work of the Holy Spirit? Well, there is so much to say about the person of the Holy Spirit. And I've only got 20 minutes to tell you just a few things of what Jesus emphasizes here, which is that the great work of the Spirit is to make known the Son of God to communicate Jesus. That's what he does in the world and for Jesus' followers. And so Charles Spurgeon said that it is ever the work of the Holy Spirit to take our eyes off of self and on to Christ. That's what he's all about. When the Spirit comes, Jesus says, he will prove the world to be in the wrong about sin and righteousness and judgment. Now, Bruce Milne explains that the phrase translated here prove the world to be in the wrong, literally means to show someone their sin and summon them to repentance, to show the the true state of a person. 
And so it's the work of the Spirit to show the true state of the world, to summon the world to repentance. Remember John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes would not perish but have everlasting life. In the very next verse, John 3, 17, Jesus says, for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. The son of God is the savior of the world. And the spirit works to convict the world of sin at the heart of which is an unbelieving rejection of its savior, Jesus. You see, sin blinds us to God in all his beauty. The the, the Bible says it's a bit like having a veil that covers your mind and covers your eyes. You're kind of groping around in the dark and you just can't see what's right there. Just grabbing onto whatever you can grab hold of and what the world grabs hold of is money and power and sex. That's what, that's what the world is obsessed with. The world blinds you into thinking that the things of value are those things, so you grab onto them, not seeing what's of real value. The world thinks that's what makes you significant, that's what makes you secure, more power. Sin distorts, it darkens our perspective. Martin Luther said that the sinner is that person who is curved in on themselves, Is that not like our common human condition? So curved in on ourselves that we can barely see anything else outside of ourselves. Augustine, the fourth century African bishop, said that the human problem is one of disordered loves. Now, a human being cannot help but love something, but we miss the great love of the universe by clinging on to things which are much lesser, much less satisfying, sometimes actually destructive. The work of the Spirit in convicting the world about sin is also the work of revealing Christ as Lord and Savior and all-satisfying. As the message about Christ is shared, the helper opens eyes to see Jesus, warms hearts to want Jesus, and reveals the glorious truth that Jesus is given. The reformers used to say it's like the sun sheds forth its, its light and its warmth. And so you might imagine a sunflower all curved on in itself in the dark until the sun shines its light and its warmth and the sunflower turns out towards it and just drinks it all in. It's the work of the Spirit to show us Jesus. He's the Father's gift. You want peace? He's the Prince of Peace. You need your guilt removed. He is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. You have hungers that need satisfying. He's the bread of life. You want joy in his presence, his fullness of joy. You need to know you're accepted. Those who come to him, he will never cast away. You want justice in the world? Mary sings, he brings down rulers from their thrones but lifts up the humble. What you really want, what your heart really wants is Jesus. What the world truly needs is Jesus. And the Spirit reveals that truth. He realigns our disordered loves. He opens us up in our inwardly curved state to drink in the goodness of God. He removes the veil so that we can see. You know, one of the Favorite scenes I have in the film Beauty and the Beast is, um, is a scene, well, let me tell you about it. Beauty and the Beast, um, the protagonist Belle, beautiful Belle, 
loves books, loves to get lost in a story, doesn't she? But actually in this scene, she has been kept away from books for really quite some time, imprisoned in the castle of the beast. Uh, And she is made to close her eyes and she's led into this dark room, unsure really what's going to happen next. And in this scene, she stays with her eyes closed and, and the curtains in the room are opened up, still with her eyes closed, and the sunlight floods in and she, she moves her face towards the sun, still her eyes closed. And then the word comes, okay, now, open your eyes. And Belle sees she's in a room full of books, a huge library, more books than she could have ever imagined, all that her heart desires. It was right there all the time. She just didn't know about it, but she was made to see, and everything changed. That's like the work of the Spirit. He proves the world to be wrong about sin, wrong about Jesus, one sinner at a time, revealing Jesus to be who he really is, the radiance of God's glory, the shining face of God. And the Spirit keeps doing that to those of us who have believed. If you're anything like me, you can quickly forget and the Spirit continues to shine upon us, the beauty and the majesty of who Jesus is. Later in the passage, Jesus says, the Spirit will lead us in all truth and take what belongs to Christ and make it known to you. The Spirit loves to make the Son known. Do you see what you have in Christ? Do you see your King? You can lose everything if you've got the King, you've got everything. The Spirit proves the world wrong with regard to sin, but also with regard to righteousness. Jesus explains, he proves the world wrong with regard to righteousness because he is going to the Father. What are we to make of all that? Well, now righteousness is a word that we don't really use in everyday life very much, do we? I mean, we might say to someone, how are you with regard to your health? How are you with regard to your job, with regard to your family? We don't tend to say, how are you with regard to righteousness? Because that feels really quite threatening. Righteousness seems like, you know, someone that the person over there might have, but I'm really not sure that I do, and it makes me nervous to think that they might. Yeah. But to be righteous has been described as to be in right relationship with God. And that's certainly part of it. Jesus has now gone to the Father, and he sits down at the right hand of the Father. Why? Because... The work has been complete that's necessary for all righteousness, to make us right with God. You see, the wisdom of the world says that to be right with God, you have to improve yourself, be better, be more, try harder, pray, fast, go on pilgrimage. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And having carried the sin of the world to the cross, Jesus cries, it is finished, it's done. The work is done in full. Jesus is our righteousness. Jesus is our right standing with God. And he has gone to be with the Father so that you may always know, no matter how you feel, no matter how good or life bad is, how many chess pieces you have, your righteousness is in heaven and it is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Always secure in Christ. The world is wrong about righteousness. It's not all about how many pieces you've got. It's all about the king. It's all about the king. Righteousness is not something God has over against us. 
Actually, this, the second thing to know about righteousness, as it's described in the Bible, is that it's more of, the, more of a verb than a noun. It's God's movement to make right what is wrong. God's action. The righteousness of God is the action of God to right what has been wrong, leading us out of destructive behaviors and habits into his freedom, but also in putting the world to rights. One of my favorite people in the world, Fleming Rutledge, writes that gross injustice demonstrates a basic premise. In our world, something is terribly wrong and cries out to be put right. And the distressing events in Ukraine and in Afghanistan, closer to home, cases like Sarah Everard's, these cry out to the, that the world is wrong and needs to be put right. Cries out for judgment. Wherever we see power exercised to dominate, to enslave, to oppress, to take, to lie, there we see direct opposition to the kingdom of Jesus Christ. There we see the influence of the powers of darkness that Jesus calls in verse 11, the prince of this world or the ruler of this world. And Jesus says, he stands condemned. You see, forgiveness, right relationship, not having your sins held against you, that's wonderful gospel news, yeah? But where evil has run amok, it leaves wounds of destruction that must be addressed. There can be no impunity. Wrongs must be put right. God must take action as the righteous one. It cannot be forgive and forget. There must be justice. Rutledge writes, a policy of forgive and forget can produce lasting harm on the political level as well as the personal. Peace without justice is an illusory peace that sets the stage for vengeful behavior later on. The strength to persevere in the struggle against monstrous evil is found in knowing that the wounds remaining in human society after great atrocities are the wounds of Christ himself, now risen and reigning, but still the lamb standing yet slain. Jesus says the spirit will prove the world wrong with respect to judgment. Because in the end, all shall not be settled in the favor of the one with the greatest force, the greatest economy, the greatest army, the greatest weapons. And in the end, the abuser will not hold power over the vulnerable. There will be a reckoning. The horrors of injustice will be exposed. Jesus speaks these words on the eve of his crucifixion. The king himself the very Son of God would soon be bound and led away by force. He would be beaten at the bidding of ruthless worldly powers, and he would die the death of a slave and an outcast. The Son of God, King of the universe, one with all authority. Rutledge writes, God in Christ, on the cross, has become one with those who are despised and the outcasts of the world. On the cross, Jesus simultaneously identifies with the oppressed and defeats the powers of the oppressor. 
both at the same time. The Lion of Judah and the Lamb of God. A crucified man, you see, was a figure of ridicule and shame, a spectacle. But listen to what Paul writes under the influence of the Holy Spirit to the Colossians. He says that Christ, having disarmed the powers and authorities, made a spectacle of them triumphing over them at the cross. This is a great mystery. It's a mystery revealed by the Spirit. Christ crucified means evil defeated. For on the cross, he took on himself all the injustice of the world, all the destructive force of evil, and condemned it to its God-forsaken grave. And one day, that truth will have its impact on all the corners of the universe. Christ risen is the announcement of a new order, a new creation. Tom Wright explains, the events of Jesus' death and resurrection indicate decisively that the ruler of this world, the dark power that has kept humans and the world enslaved, has been condemned. His power has been broken. Death itself, the weapon of tyrants, and particularly of the Satan, is a beaten foe. Ever since Christ's crucifixion and resurrection, tyrants come, tyrants go. Christ remains Lord of all. And the gospel has spread throughout the world. Once Caesar was a name that terrorized the world, and now it's a name that belongs to dog food. (laughs) And so it shall be for every tyrannical power. The ruler of this world stands condemned. The spirit testifies that Jesus is Lord. All hail King Jesus. The Lord of heaven and earth, all hail King Jesus, savior of the world. Can I invite the band to come up, please? We're going to sing in a moment. We need Jesus. I need Jesus. The world needs Jesus. Do you want him? Is he your king? It is ever the work of the Holy Spirit to take our eyes off of self and onto Christ. Christ is the end of our sin. He is the fulfillment of righteousness. He is the judge who puts the world to rights. He will come again in glory. And from the lens of eternity, it will be in just a little while. But even now, we can know his presence with us by his spirit. Even now, the the spirit brings him to us. And one of the ways that he does that is through bread and juice as we celebrate and participate in the gift of Christ in communion. You see, Jesus promises to meet us at the table and he gives himself, his body broken, his blood poured out to make us whole, to heal the world. And he commissions us to go in the power of the Spirit to work for justice wherever we go. We may lose everything in doing so, but if you have Christ, you have everything. And the bread and the juice speak of Christ given. And by taking it, we say, yes, Lord. Come, Lord, King Jesus. 
So what we're going to do now is to sing a song in response. And then I'm going to come back and invite us to participate in the bread and the juice of the Lord's Supper. And I'll lead us through that. But let's now fix our eyes on King Jesus. Let's pray. Lord, we pray. Maranatha, come. Those last words of the Bible. Come, Lord Jesus. Lord, we need you. This world needs you. Lord, I need you. My life needs you. My family needs you. My neighborhood needs you. My city needs you. This nation needs you. Lord, the world needs you. Lord, come. You are the king like no other king. You exercise power like no one else. Not to take, but to give. Not to oppress, but to liberate. Not to bondage, but to set free. Say, yes, Lord Jesus, you are life, you are light, you are love, you are all that we need. We pray, come, Lord Jesus, and Holy Spirit, keep ministering him to us that we might live as radical disciples, bringers of justice where we go because of the supreme justice bringer, the son of righteousness who is risen with healing in his wings, Lord Jesus. We love you. Amen. Amen. Amen.